All right, with that said, let us read First John 5, verse 13. 13. It reads, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit the sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So Lord, help me as we have to talk about when not to pray. seems ironic that your word would say that. So guide us in this passage, Father. That's on the negative end. But on the positive end, give us assurance. And let all of the messages, Father, that you've been speaking to our hearts through John, build upon one another and come to the climax where we can rest and have absolutely no fear and say, we are indeed the children of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is our Sunday before Thanksgiving service, isn't it? So... I didn't really want to take time out of stalling the end of First John again and just do a Thanksgiving message, so we're just going to go right on through. But I should say a word about Thanksgiving. Do it. All right, let's move on. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I am thankful. <clears throat> I'm thankful for you guys. Indeed, definitely. Um, you guys encourage me a lot more than I think you guys know. You encourage me. And... Um, it's a blessing, especially when some of you guys want to talk about more real issues in life. That's always a great blessing. I'm always here for you guys to talk. Always here. And then it's always fun to have a group of people who want to have fun, speed pool, and then a, a bunch of people that just love to chill and make friends and make weird noises. All right. All right. And cue. One of the things though, I think that we must see that is striking in our text is that when it says that God hears us how can you not be thankful that the God of the universe bends his ear from heaven to us scrawny little leeches who are sucking life from him because that's the only place we can get it he hears us when we cry and some of our cries are pathetic God she don't love me. I don't know what I'm going to do. And Josh is chuckling up there, like, looking at your whole life saying, I know you're going to marry. Don't even worry about her. But he hears us, and he gives us comfort in those times. Oh, God, help me with this little mouth test. He hears us. God, I don't know what to do. And the whole time he's putting his will in front of you, and you're just not wanting to do it. For example, loving that person that we haven't talked to. Yet he still hears our prayers, even when we're stupid and we're not even acknowledging sometimes what's right in front of our faces. He's there to hear our prayer. The Father in heaven, the creator of everything, 
and then we come along and ruin his creation. We come along and we don't glorify him. We glorify ourselves. And then occasionally, oh Lord, I'm in trouble. It's like, yep, it's because you weren't listening to me. Even when we don't listen to him, he listens to us. Thank the Lord God Almighty. That's something to be thankful for. So you don't have to go through a five-step program to get God's ear. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to compete for it. It's not like God is sorting out, who am I going to listen to today? Marky is doing better than Tim. He read an extra verse in his devotion, so Marky gets it today. We're not competing for God's ear. I'm thankful for that, that we have access to a Father. He is more accessible than your Father, earthly Father. And some of you don't have an accessible earthly father. So praise God that you have a father. The, the Psalms say that he is the father to the fatherless. And he's the defender of the widows or the weak, in other words. He is there. So we have lots to be thankful for there. And John says that because he hears us, this is assurance. So what tonight says is that we have assurance when God hears us. If he hears my prayer, then I know I have assurance of eternal life. Why? Because it says there in verse 14, this is the confidence slash assurance that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The only people on this planet who know what God's will is, is the Christian. Worldlings don't understand God's will. They understand their will. And I'll get into that in a minute. But that's why we have assurance when he hears our prayer. Because the only, cause when, and by the way, when John says he hears it, he, what he means is he answers it. So God answers our prayer when we pray according to his will. And when that happens, you know you have assurance of eternal life because you understand the will of the Father. And that he hears your prayer. He hears the prayers of his children. So that's the assurance that we have here if God hears our prayers and, and re honors those requests. Then we know that we have assurance of eternal life. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself because we need to do a little bit of a recap. Because what verse 13 says, John says, I write these things. And then he goes on to say, my reason is so that you may have confidence, you may have assurance of eternal life. He wants you to know that you have it. So I write these things is referring to everything we've covered from chapter 1 on up to chapter 5. Those are these things. I have written this whole epistle for the purpose that you know, have assurance, of eternal life. That's why he wrote it. That's why our theme has been this throughout the series. And now he comes, he's concluding everything. He says, I wrote all of that so that you can know. So I think it's fitting at this spot, since it's I think this is our 12th message in 1 John. So I think it's fitting at this spot to, for me to recap what these things are. Alright? So, assurance of eternal life comes under two conditions. Meaning, if you're not doing these conditions, you don't have assurance. Now, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about assurance of your salvation. Confidence that you know beyond all shadow of doubt that you have it. Because we're not saved by conditions. We're saved by God's free gift of grace. So we're talking about the assurance comes with two conditions. They are these. Number one, 
love Jesus. Number two, love others. That has been the basic message of John. And it's nothing new. The Ten Commandments, the first four commandments, basically said, love God. The last six commandments basically said, love your neighbor. And then when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? He said, love God. And the second is like it. Love others. So, the Ten Commandments say it. Jesus says it. And now John, towards the end of the Bible, says it again. Do you think that this is important to Scripture? These are the two laws of the Christian. Christians do these two things. They love Jesus and others. That's, that's part of the re, being reborn of God. It's part of the new person. So, those are vague terms, though. Love Jesus, love others. What exactly does that look like? Because we know by now that this isn't warm, fuzzy feelings for people or God. Loving looks very specific. It has a very specific way of living. And so, throughout the whole epistle, he's been explaining this. So, love God. What does it mean? Well, we saw this. To love Jesus means, first, walking in the light of honest confession before God. Remember that? If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with Him. And sometimes we go into the darkness because we sin. But confession of our sin, being open with God, saying, I'm sorry, help me, I'm sick, you're my doctor, brings us back to the light. And that's assurance, is being in the light. The second way to love Jesus was by keeping His commands, specifically the command to love other people. And he showed us that the one who hates his brother is the one who's in darkness. He's going to die separated from God. The third way to love Jesus was by hating the desires of this world. John said, 2 verse 15, If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. So, remember that the desires of the world are those turns when we go out to the desires of the world, we enter into the NASCAR track and we just go in circle after circle, falling desire after desire after desire. And we're supposed to be falling straight after Jesus' love. Just loving Him, going straight forward, all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the desires of the world, Satan throws over here and he tries to get me to steer away from loving Jesus. That's the purpose of the desires. To put my love away from Him and into the love of my flesh, the love of what my eyes see, and the love of pride and possession. So... Loving Jesus by hating the desires of the world. Keeping straight after Him full-heartedly. Fourth way to love Jesus we saw at the end of chapter 2 was abiding in the church. Remember John said some are antichrist in the church. They've left us to prove that they were never of us. And there are some people who do that. Now, there are some people who backslide and come back. But there are those who have left and they never come back. And I don't mean this church, us here. I mean the Church of Christ. They have left church altogether. They never go to church. And I don't believe a true Christian finds joy in being separated from God's house. They hunger to come. So John says, abide in the church. That's assurance of loving Jesus. And then finally, in the beginning of chapter 3, he said, imitate the Father. That's how you know you love Jesus. You love Him, you start to imitate Him. So imitate Him. Then, how do we love others? Second condition. We have looked at three parts so far. How you love others, number one. It was in the middle of chapter three. He said, meeting their needs with sacrificial generosity. Which means they don't necessarily deserve it. But I sacrifice of my time, my money, my effort, whatever it is. 
my comforts. I give up self to help another brother in need or sister. That's sacrificial generosity. That's how we love them. John said that if you ignore them when you see a need, you're actually hating them, like Cain hated Abel. And he said, no murderer has eternal life in them. So, sacrificial generosity. Second way to love others, we saw was by protecting them in chapter 4. Protecting them from false philosophies. So, like John saying, watch out for the Antichrist and the false spirits and false teachings. Because if you go after them, you're going to lead others into it. And you're going to be responsible. And that's not loving to bring other people into ungodly things. So stay in the truth and help other people to stay in the truth. That's how you can love each other. And finally, at the end of chapter 4, he said, love one another by perfecting God's love inside of you. His love perfected and it comes out of me for other people. Then we come to chapter 5 and the whole book's being concluded. So you see how loving Jesus and loving others is a full-blown lifestyle. It is not just, well, I, I love him. And then you're just living life. You love him with life. You love others with life. And you can do it with life, the person too. <laughs> so it's full-blown. This is the assurance that John aims for for us. In chapter 5, he just comes to all the conclusions. Um, he says, for example, in the first five verses, look, I want you guys to overcome the burden of obedience some of you feel like God's commands are too hard. You don't want to obey them. Overcome it with faith that Jesus is all you need to do it. And then we saw last week the, the true testimony of God. Believe and receive the true testimony of God concerning Jesus. That is the way to have eternal life. And now he concludes in verse 13. I write all of those things so that you may know with confidence and assurance that you have eternal life. So I trust that by now, if any of these areas have been of conviction to you, you have prayed to the Father for help and said, I want assurance in my walk. I want the full abundance of joy to know that I'm walking with you. I don't want the darkness or the, the, the confusion or, or the insecurity. I want to be full-blown in your presence, always living and rejoicing with God every single day. And so if you found conviction in any of those areas that you've been asking Him for help and that you've been seeing growth there, that's what we've been going for. And so that um, is my 10-minute summary of the book. And now John says, I wrote it for your assurance, and guess what? This is the confidence that God hears our prayers. So if God hears my prayers, I know that I'm doing all these things well and that I have assurance of eternal life. Notice the condition it says there. In verse 14, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If I pray according to God's will, I'm going to get an answer. If I pray according to my will, good luck. That's why God's not a genie. Lamborghini time! Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord. I didn't answer yet. I need to pray more. Oh Lord, oh Lord. That's my will, not His will. But doesn't God want my good? Yes, He wants your good. Then you give me a Lamborghini. No. Because <laughs> He knows that that Lamborghini just might steal your heart from Him. And that is not for your good. But what about tragedy? We pray against tragedy. 
God, let not this mountain blow up as a volcano. Save our lives. Can't, that's totally His will, right? But then maybe it happens. The mountain blows up as a volcano. We all burn and scream as we're flying through the air. What if that happens? Does God truly not hear prayer? Because aren't we praying according to His will? Or is it His will that the mountain blows up and we die? You never know. What about something like divorce? How many children do you think have prayed, God, don't let my parents separate? Yet they separated. God hates divorce. Not the people in it, but he hates the act of divorce. And if I'm praying that it doesn't happen, if that sin doesn't happen, wouldn't he hear that? Is that not his will that people stay married? You would think so. Or is it? Here's, here's the difficult thing, and, and I'm going to confess, I don't have this clear-cut answer for you, but I think we can help come to some kind of a, oh, maybe, here at this moment. God sometimes, because of the nature of the world and creation, we are subjected to the fall. And God has ordained that we are fallen. So he, he has to, because of his command, his ordinance that we're fallen, he has to allow the fall to keep going. So at times, divorce, murder, adultery, these things are necessary as part of the fall. Does God will these things happen? Does He desire them to happen? No. But He can hire them to happen. In other words, use them for His purposes. Let me give you an example of when this actually happened, solid, no doubt. The crucifixion of God's Son on the cross. Was that God's plan? Absolutely. It was no accident. But how did that crucifixion happen? It happened through lying from the Pharisees. It happened through murder on behalf of the Romans. It happened through mockery and blasphemy. All kinds of sins were involved in getting Jesus to the cross and crucified. Yet, this was God's will. So you see, there's this mystery that God can use sin to accomplish His purposes. So there will be times when you're praying for what clearly may be God's will, but He's still going to use something else. Maybe some higher purpose. God, don't let my parents get divorced. Yes, that is what He wants. But because of the fall, He has to let people that want to experience pain, because they're choosing these choices, to let them experience it. But this is the beauty about God. But people want the divorce. It's not like He's saying, oh, darn, I can't do anything about it. They're, they're going against my will. I don't know what to do. God is sovereign and He supersedes our stupid choices. So that He can look at this divorce and allow it to happen, not because He desires it, but He's going to use it, and allow something greater to come out of it. That's the beauty of our God. But even if maybe that direct prayer for His will doesn't come about, He has a greater will that's going to supersede it. Maybe immediately, maybe one day. There's a great mystery behind it. I think what we need to do is understand what truly God's will is and it'll help us to see some of these things more like, yeah, you know what? Maybe we should just... That is glory to God for that. What, what really is God's will? Is it always that we're prosperous and happy? 
well, let me rephrase that word happy, because yes, he wants us to be happy. Is it always that we're materialistically prosperous and comfortable? Maybe not. This is what Jesus said in John 14, 13. This is, real, this is a parallel to what John says here. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that's the same thing as saying whatever you ask according to my will. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. So let me rephrase that. Jesus said, if you ask for anything in my name and according to my will, I will do it so that God is glorified. That's the reason he answers prayer. It's so that he is glorified, not us. So sometimes we pray thinking it's God's will, but God has something that will glorify him more by not answering that request. You see, we need to understand that his will is all about his glory, not our comfort. It's all about his glory, not our prosperity. Sometimes, God looks most glorious when life looks most disastrous. And that's why sometimes divorce can happen. Life is looking disastrous. But if it happened, God has a way to make himself look most glorious. It's not about our prosperity. It's about his glory. That's what it means to pray according to his will. God, whatever it takes that you are most glorified, let that happen even if tragedy is the way. So, I, I, that's my feeble attempt to explain how praying for God's will sometimes doesn't happen. Because I think he has a will that supersedes it. And this plan is so mind-boggling because he has to allow the fall to keep happening so that he is glorified at the end when he reverses the curse. Murder, rape, adultery, divorce... Mur I said murder, whatever, all of them, abortion, our suffering, human fallenness and the curse, all of this is painting a black backdrop so that when the king returns, he is glorified. What if we all live comfortable, happy lives, materialistically happy? Oh yeah, life's so great, nothing bad ever happens all over the world. And then the king returns, what do you think humanity will say to the king? Why do we need you? The fall creates this magnificent need for the king to return. And that's why sometimes we have to go through things, even though it seems contrary to his will, it is still part of his ultimate will. We need to see ourselves as not these personal little agents demanding from God. We're part of his grand scheme. And to look at the big picture of his ultimate glory, even if it just has to wait to the end time. Yay for God. That's what I say. That's why he answers prayer. His glory not our prosperity. Alright, that's the easy part of this message. Although it was still kind of hard. Here comes the difficult part. Paul, or John, he gives us an example of what to pray for. He said, God hears our prayers, but now what do we pray for? Verse 16, he talks about a brother who commits a sin not leading to death, and then a brother who commits a sin that leads to death. What in the world is the sin that leads to death? I have a couple of propositions that I read up on that I'm going to give you my proposition, which I think supersedes the others. Number one, some people suggest the sin that leads to death is a severe sin. 
that is worthy of damnation. In other words, you can commit a sin that damns you. Um, this is what they say. Like some, maybe murder, adultery, stuff like that. That is such a bad sin, God just can't forgive you of it. Baloney! Whoever came up with that theory didn't look at Peter, who denied his Savior three times and still found forgiveness. So we'll erase that one. The second idea is that it is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is in Matthew 12, verse 31. Jesus said, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be saved. What the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is seeing the power of Jesus and attributing that not to the Spirit of God, but to the Spirit of Satan. That's the blasphemy of the Spirit. That could be it, but John says nothing about the Spirit here. Um, the third, a sin that God sees worthy of taking one's life. This one differs from the other ones. We're talking about physical life. Like, you're living and you're, you keep sinning and sinning and sinning, and God says, all right, time to take you out of the world, so you, you keep sinning too much. People believe this. Because in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, claiming they were giving the church all their money when they weren't, and they dropped dead on the spot. God killed them. But that was a very rare example. That happened once, and it was at the beginning of the church, which I think is noteworthy. He was starting a foundation, not a way to keep going. So I, I, I think we have to throw that one out the window, too. Then here's the credible one. The fourth one, this is the popular theory. The sin that leads to death is unbelief. And I agree. Unbelief. If you don't believe in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins so that you can become a son of God, a daughter of God, a child of God, you, if you die in that state, you will go to hell. That is a sin that leads to death. However, I don't think that that's what John's talking about here. Because he says at um, verse 16 at the end, he says, don't pray for the person that commits a sin that leads to death. What that would be saying is don't pray for the unbelievers. That is highly unbiblical because Jesus told his disciples, see all those lost without a shepherd? Pray that God sends people to save them. So that's totally an unbiblical thought. That's why I don't think it can refer to unbelief. I propose, I think this fits the context of the book, in two passages, separate passages, John talks about the Antichrist. Those who are running around in the church spreading false doctrines. I think it refers to them. I think that the sin that leads to death is willful. Note the word willful. Willful apostasy against revealed truth. Let me rephrase that. There are people who have the truth revealed. They see Jesus. They see Him as the Son of God. They see their sin and their need for forgiveness. They see the truth. It's not like they just kind of don't get it. They see it. They get it. They've been in the church. And they willfully reject Him. And more than that, they don't just say, okay, that's fine, whatever, I'm going to go live my life, and then maybe later return. They willfully reject it, and then go and tell other people that Jesus is a lie. Willful apostasy against revealed truth. This was happening. If you look at 2 verse 26, he says about the um, Antichrist, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. There are those in the church who are trying to make you believe that Jesus is a lie. I think that's the sin that leads to death. Those who not only are rejecting what they know to be true, but they're going out of their way to make others not believe it. That indeed 
is going to lead you to death. Um, what about the sins that don't lead to death? I think it would be along the same lines. However, like this. Those are the people that are deceived by these liars, the deceivers. They're deceived by them. They, they, they know the truth, but they're, they're just like, they're innocent. They're like so naive. They don't really know the word. They, they're not, and, and they just, they totally get lied to and deceived. And maybe they go into some sin, they're in darkness, and they're being led away from the church. And John says, pray for them, please. They're going down a way that leads to their ultimate destruction. Pray for them that God shows them that they're totally and utterly lost and deceived if they come back. That's the sin that doesn't lead to death. But they were committing it. And that's why John says there, pray for them and God will give them life. He hears our prayers. Do you remember that? He said, if we ask according to his will, he hears us. And here's the example. If a brother is being led astray and deceived, pray for them. God will hear your prayer and give them life. He'll bring them back. That is an awesome promise. What that means is that God loses none of his children, even if they get led astray by doctrine. God, if, if we pray for them, God will come and he will bring them back some way by some means. But others will go off and they will go into the darkness and never come back. Those are the Antichrist as well. John says that they have left us to prove that they were never of us. But if they were ever of us, God does not lose his children. That is wonderful, positive assurance. And he says, pray for that. Pray for that. Alright, so let me touch on that. But now, I want to show you totally distraught the, the, the thought that the sin that leads to death is mere unbelief. I want to destroy that for you. It has to be willful apostasy against the truth. Because John speaks of our salvation as leading from death to life. For example, within 1 John, it's in 3.14. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. You see that? We've passed out of death to life. There was a transition. Now, if there is a sin that leads to death, how can you be led to death if you're already in death? Unbelievers are in that state of death because believers are led out of death into life. So then, if you're already in death, how can you have a sin that's leading you to death? You're already in death. You get that? So to have a sin that leads to death means that these are people who are actually in the life. That's why I say they're people who absolutely understand the salvation through Jesus. They see it, they get it, maybe they loved Him, they believed in Him, but at some point, they willfully choose, I want it no longer, and I'm going to spread false doctrine about Christ. That's how you go from life and lead yourself into death. Because that is unforgivable. I mean, it's forgivable, but a heart that does that is never going to turn back. To, have, to taste and know the gospel and then to turn your back and start spreading lies about it, you know what that reveals about the person? Not that they're making mistakes, but that their heart belongs to the devil. Sorry, God, I'm going to the devil. That's the sin that leads to death. So that's why it can't just be unbelief. Furthermore, um, you guys know that Jesus talked about those who don't believe are already in death. Kind of like we're saying, but here's what Jesus said in John 3.18. Whoever believes in Jesus is not dead. But whoever does not believe, unbelief, is dead already. So it can't be unbelief. 
because that you can't be led to death if you're already dead. So that's how I destroy that theory. That this has to be willful apostasy. People who are in and active with Christ and turn their back and go the other way. So now here we come to the difficult part. Why would John tell us not to pray for them? Isn't it God's will that everybody saved? This whole series about assurance has focused on the positive, hasn't it? This is how you know that you have assurance of good stuff. Assurance of eternal life. That's here. But for the first time, John gives us another kind of assurance. He says this also is how you have assurance of eternal death. Negative assurance. So, let me show you. Okay, so... The first one, pray for the deceived so that they have assurance of eternal life. The positive assurance. Pray for those. So they're being led astray. He says, pray for them, verse 16. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin, not leading death, by the way, he sees a sin. That shows you it's physical. It's not just some unbelieving attitude. Um, sees a sin, not leading to death. He shall ask God. God will give him life. So in other words, pray for him. Help him. Why? Number one, because... They are being deceived with the darkness of death and they need to be saved from it. Secondly, they are in need of assurance. They have no assurance if they're walking in that way. So pray for them. And then third, God will be glorified when you pray for them and they return. Remember, prayer is all about glorifying God. So pray for them because you'll glorify God when they return. But what about those that commit the sin that leads to death? He says, there is a sin, middle of verse 16, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. What? We're to pray for all things. Oh, the Bible says one thing not to pray for. Those that commit the sin that leads to death. Why? If my proposal that the sin that leads to death is willful apostasy against revealed truth, that there are people that accepted Jesus and then decided no more. I'm actually going to try to lead people away from Jesus. If that's your heart, you have confirmed. You have brought your own assurance of destruction. You've revealed that you're not a son of God. You're a son of Satan. And you're working for the devil. You're doing what he wants you to do. I mean, we're not talking about deception. Like, oh yeah, I got a little deceived and I sinned and I did what the devil wanted me to do. Oops. I mean, God will take you back if you confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. But these people know full well what they're doing, and they want people to stop believing in Jesus. They want to destroy His name. And God says, give me five minutes. And God says, Paul, John says, don't pray for them. Why? Because God will be glorified over their destruction. If they have chosen to harden their heart against God in that way, and they go to hell, God is glorified. This, this is a hard concept, so put, on, put this on here. The fact that God has ordained, but hasn't willed, so he doesn't want this, but he has ordained it, that some people perish. It is in his law of the universe that there are some people that go to hell. Now, I'm not saying he has chosen individuals to go to hell, but it is in 
the, or the way he's run the universe, that there will be people in hell. I didn't say he wants that, but he's orchestrated it so that it will be. Why? So that our salvation looks all the more glorious. When sinners who turn their backs against God go to hell, God is glorified. Because everything he said will happen, happen. He's just. His mercy is shown through us and his justice is upheld through their damnation. And so when a person chooses to willfully go against the truth and to lead other people away from it, John says, don't pray for them because God will be more glorified when they go to the place they chose to go to. God is glorified in the damnation of sinners. Not that we are to will people there. There will be people there. So we don't have to like add to that number. <laughs> but John says, don't even waste your time or prayer for those people because they have chosen to become sons of the devil. Give them their wish. And God will be glorified through that. Just like He'll be glorified by bringing the believer back. He'll be glorified by letting the lost be lost. So, it might be hard for some of you to accept at first, but chew on it. And I think you'll see that it is necessary that not all are saved. Alright, so don't pray for them because it glorifies God. Secondly, um, don't pray for them because we want to uphold the assurance of true believers. Think about this. If their heart is to serve Satan, and they're brought back into the church, is that a good thing? To let them spread their false gospel inside the church? Heaven forbid that. And then, also, because they're not deceived, they're deceivers. They know full well what they're saying, so don't pray for them, he says. Now, how does that work out practically in real life? I don't know. I don't know how we know, like, pray for them, don't pray for them. Unless, I mean, maybe just because we've never seen somebody here like this, but maybe let's say Tim just started, you know, behind our back is telling everybody, that, showing us how, like, Jesus is alive amidst everything Brandon, like, everything Brandon is saying is, like, a joke, and he starts, like, dismantling my arguments and stuff. You know, on the fly, and then, and then, you know, he's he's out partying every weekend and stuff, and he's getting laid all the time, and he's he's actually starting to lead Logan with him away from Jesus, and we see this total destruction of the faith. Well, look, we maybe believe that Logan's totally deceived, so we start praying for Logan that he's restored. But what do we do with Tim? Oh Lord, let him come back and be happy and love you once again. Do you think that Tim's going to just love God once again after he's chosen to damn himself? He's a dangerous person to be around. John says, don't pray for him. Let God be glorified through Tim's choice of damnation. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how that works out. I pray we never see that and that this is something we never actually have to practice. But that's where it is and that's my proposal of what John is saying. So, um, here, let's end on a positive note of assurance. We have assurance that God answers our prayers according to his will. Because only Christians know his will. These people that commit the sin that leads to death are in it for one thing. God's glory? Nope. Their glory. They don't know how to pray. Worldlings don't know how to pray. It's all about, help me, help me, save me, give me stuff. But Christians understand that prayer is all about his will and glory, even if it leads to tragedy. Sometimes he is most glorious when life is most disastrous. And we understand that. That's why God can hear our prayers. Because we conform ourselves to him. 
So if that's the case for you, that you totally pray totally for God's will, and you see Him moving in your life and listening to your prayers and answering, know that you have assurance of eternal life, John wants to say. So Lord, um, we thank you for the huh, positive side of this message. Lord, it, it, it is helpful, and we're truly thankful that you hear our prayers. Um, Lord, we do want to pray for those who are deceived by those committing the sin that leads to death, that they would be rescued from the jaws of the lion and brought back into the full assurance of eternal life. So, Father, thank you that you're glorified even when people reject you. Nothing can rob you of your glory. You will have the final say. And we want to be on that side. We want to be the praisers of your glory, not the ones against it. In Jesus' name, amen.